Hello and welcome to BioEats World. I'm Lauren Richardson, scientist and former senior editor of PLOS Biology. On this podcast, we explore the growing intersection of biology, healthcare, and technology, and how to take the cutting edge research from the lab into the real world. When it comes to developing new therapeutics, that transition from lab to clinic has to involve a clinical trial. And these are huge hurdles, not just because they have to rigorously demonstrate safety and efficacy of the therapy, but because they are extremely complex operations to design and carry out. Clinical trials are themselves experiments, but to make sure that they are doing the best possible job at answering the safety and efficacy questions, we need to be able to do experiments on those experiments. So how do you do that in such a highly regulated space? I'm joined today by James Zhou, Assistant Professor of Biomedical Data Science at Stanford University, and A16Z General Partner Vanita Agrawala, physician and expert on real-world data in healthcare, to discuss new research from the Zoe Lab published in the journal Nature that simulates clinical trials using patient data to understand how different designs influence clinical trial outcomes, and in particular, how this can make trials more inclusive which is key for getting patients access to potentially life-saving care. Our conversation covers the inherited rules and assumptions governing which patients can participate in trials, how Dr. Zhou, lead author Rushan Liu, and colleagues combined real-world data and computer simulations to challenge these assumptions with a data-driven approach, and how this can inform smarter trial design. We start with Vanita laying out the issues in the current clinical trial landscape. In oncology, the clinical trial universe is particularly paradoxical. It is really considered a standard of care priority to get patients access to clinical trials. And yet roughly 80% of patients fail to qualify for the trials. And we have this problem that we can't recruit fast enough. 86% of clinical trials in this country fail to recruit, complete their recruitment on time. And this particular paper got at maybe one of the mechanistic reasons why this paradox exists, which is that trials are designed to target certain subsets of populations. And what if we're being too restrictive in how we define those criteria? One of my collaborators, Ryan Copeland, like to describe these clinical trials that they're somehow looking for the Olympic athletes among the patients, right? So they're looking for patients that have relatively healthy and also have very, very pristine conditions. And that creates this paradox, right, whereby you know, many patients that who want to participate in the trials will not be eligible for potentially life-saving treatment. It also hurts the pharmaceutical biopharma companies because then they find it very hard and expensive to enroll patients for these trials. Right? The third aspect of this is that even if the trials are successful, because they're being tested on Olympic athletes, right, so you don't really know how well would these results generalize the broader population who ends up using these treatments after it comes on the market. I mean, you can understand, you know, probably how this evolved, which is that you don't want confounding factors. You don't want to be testing your heart medication on someone who also has, you know, lung disease, because then your data would not be as easy to understand. But you're limiting yourself to a very specific class of people that actually may not be generalizable to the broader population. So how are patients selected for a clinical trial today? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. These trials are really quite complex things to, de to design. So we first came into this about two years ago in collaboration with our colleagues here at Roche Genentech. And we zoomed in on this part about the eligibility criteria. And that's really the set of rules, right? That decides which patients are eligible to participate in the trial, right? So if you're, for example, if your white blood cell counts or hemoglobin level is, is below a certain threshold, some trials will say you're not even eligible to participate in that trial. Right, so there's a bunch of criteria, sometimes you know, pages and pages of criteria that says, okay, you are not eligible and you are eligible. And that could be what other conditions you have. It could also include what prior treatments you've had. It could also include things like your age. So it's a very long list of clinical features about a patient that may determine whether or not they meet the protocol eligibility. And our experience is that when we look at systematically across different trials is that these eligibility rules ends up looking very different across different trials, even if they're looking at the same disease or using, looking at the similar kinds of drugs, right, using similar mechanisms of action. And that's where we thought as computer scientists, as data scientists, maybe that's where we could actually bring in more data and the algorithms and potentially have a large impact by providing more data-driven recommendations and guidance to companies on how to design these eligibility criteria. So this is a very complex kind of cost-benefit analysis of how do you decide which patients get to be included into the trial. And it involves safety. It involves the cost of running the trial. It involves the logistics of running the trial. And how are you most likely to get an answer that really solves the problem that you're trying to get to? So the eligibility criteria are the manifestation of this cost-benefit analysis, and you want to take a data-driven approach to help clarify and to optimize to make sure that you can include as many people as you can in a trial, but also maintain safety and things like that. So when you set out to address this very challenging question, you know, where did you start? Yeah, so in the ideal world, what I would do is, you know, I take an existing trial, I would do a bunch of counterfactual trials. Each of those trials potentially have a different tweaks on the eligibility rules and see what is the outcome, right? Are those trials, are they consistent with each other? Do they increase the number of patients that are participate? Are they easy to run? And do they give sort of similar effect sizes for the treatment? Now, of course, that's not really possible or even realistic. But that's where the real-world data becomes very powerful. And by the real-world data here, I mean really the data derived from electronic health records of cancer patients who are oftentimes taking these treatments after they come on the market. Yeah, so inclusion-exclusion criteria define the patients who are part of the tested clinical trial. The ultimate drug label describes who is formally eligible for the therapy and there can be differences. And then there's real world use, which is even broader than both. Something like over 50% of all drug prescribing in oncology is actually off label. So it's not even you know, what the clinical trial was done in, it's not even what the FDA formally said you, know, you could use the drug for. It's what the clinician decided to, you know, extrapolate from clinical trial data to treat patients who have terrible diseases. And the other reason to use real-world data is simply scale. Flatiron Health aggregated electronic health record data from across a large number of both community and academic 
oncology practices all over the country and built a large set of data curation pipelines to clean it up basically and make it usable for research. I was lucky to be a part of the team that worked on the non-small cell lung cancer data set that's used in this particular paper. A big team spent many years kind of figuring out how to curate electronic health record data to create what they called research grade real world data. So how do you use this data from patients who were not in clinical trials to determine the impact of exclusion criteria for patients that are in clinical trials? What's the experimental design you're using? So we have all of that data from these longitudinal electronic health records, and we use that data to simulate these different counterfactual trials that I would have liked to run in the ideal world. So you know, we have a patient that I observe in my medical record right, who ends up taking the drug because maybe they're take, using it off-label, but they would not have actually been eligible for that treatment in the original clinical trial because maybe they have some other prior conditions. And then we said, okay, if we actually modify the criteria a little bit, if, for example, relax some of the thresholds for excluding patients, then that person would have been eligible. And now, basically, for every counterfactual modification I make to the trial's eligibility criteria, I have a different cohort of patients now in my real-world population who would be eligible under that modified criteria thresholds. So that allowed me to simulate like, what this new treatment arm would have looked like under a sort of relaxed eligibility criteria. And here, of course, we have to be very careful to control for these other confounders. And this is where a lot of the statistical modeling and techniques come in. But let's say if we can carefully do that, then we have a synthetic treatment arm, right? Under this modified criteria, we also have a corresponding synthetic control arm. And we can run those two computationally and see, okay, what is the effect size of the treatment on this new cohort? So what's the readout of these simulations? How do you determine whether including or excluding a certain criteria is beneficial to the trial or detrimental to the trial? So for each synthetic trial that we simulate, the input into the trial will be a set of eligibility criteria. And the output would basically be two main types of output that we're interested in, right? The first is, what is the number of eligible patients under this new set of eligibility criteria, right? We would like that to be as inclusive or as large as possible. And the second metric of key interest is, how well did the actual treatment do for those set of patients? In the clinical trials, that's called sort of hazard ratio. How well did the people who took the treatment do compared to the control arm, right? You want the hazard to be as low as possible, as close to zero as possible. The hazard ratio is the relative risk of death in both arms of the trial. That's right. And then the third consideration is really related to safety, right? So even short of death, which is quite extreme, how many other adverse events did these patients suffer? For all trials, the main endpoints are efficacy and safety. And so those are the same two endpoints that our SimCity trial framework has to have, right? Like we have to look at the trials in our simulation world and ask, well, what would we have measured in terms of efficacy of the drug? Would that have been different? And then we have to ask about safety. Would we have created more adverse effects? To some extent, the irony of this whole thing is that it's like sort of a moot point because the drug ended up getting to those patients anyway regardless of whether they had been included in the trial. And so that creates the third output that James just described, which is access. How broadly available would the trial have been to more patients 
you know, at that time when a trial might've been a source of important solace and treatment opportunity for them. And the other side of the coin on access is speed. How quickly might this trial have alternatively recruited such that we could have gotten to an answer more quickly on whether or not this drug works? And so safety, efficacy, access, and speed are kind of really important metrics that this paper provided a way to get at more quickly than a real life trial takes. And that's where really the power of taking this data-driven computational approach comes in, right? Because you know, if I just do this trial once, it would take in many years. But since we have the data, I can computationally do millions of synthetic trials in parallel. And within a day, within hours, we can actually get results back from all of these millions of trials. And then actually a lot of the work is think, how do we aggregate that information together? How do we summarize the statistics and then derive the insights? But the actual running of these synthetic trials, that's actually extremely fast. So we've discussed that the trial's eligibility is generally too restrictive, but what did the data tell you about how much or how little that actually impacts the number of people who could have possibly benefited from being in a trial? So we found that we can actually, in many cases, more than double the number of patients who will be eligible for these trials while still maintaining, and in many cases, actually reducing the hazard ratio. So that means that we're actually showing that the drug's are just as effective or maybe even more effective on the patients who were excluded. So for example, for this checkpoint 57 trial, out of the 60,000 flat-iron patients, these are about 800 that will be eligible under the original trials criteria. And the hazard ratio is relatively low, so it's about 0.75. And then we see, okay, so what would happen if you actually do not have any restriction? So then as you can imagine, you have a lot more patients, you have about 4,900 patients. And interestingly, the hazard ratio among this broader set of patients without excluding anyone is actually comparable, maybe even a little bit smaller than the hazard ratio before. And then we also have our recommendation based on this analysis across these synthetic clinical trials. We recommend that it's good to keep nine out of the 19 eligibility conditions. And with that, we'll end up with about 2,600 patients, so it's more than threefold larger than the original trial cohort, while having even a lower hazard ratio, about 0.66. So there's just some evidence that we could significantly relax and broaden the trial population to make it more inclusive. And the people that we bring in, they could potentially benefit from the treatment to the similar, even greater extent than the narrow slice of people that were eligible for the original trial. I thought this was a fascinating result. For some studies, maybe five times as many people could have been enrolled in the trial. And we might still have had the same result on efficacy of the drug. But that does then raise the next question, how do we know that we wouldn't have had increased toxicity issues or increased adverse effects? Yes. And that's where we also used additional data, both from clinical trials and also using some additional follow-up data provided by Flatiron to measure, okay, so do these new patients that we bring into the trial, so they actually suffer more adverse events compared to the original, more pristine, narrow patients. And we didn't really find any systematic differences there. Was there a specific culprit that you identified amongst all the various inclusion, exclusion criteria that you found was like a major contributor to this overly restrictive nature? Right. The responsibility is shared that can be spread across many of these different eligibility conditions. And there are also complex interactions between different eligibility rules. One general insight is that laboratory-based thresholds 
is that something that's has been often used and excludes many patients. And we think that many of these laboratory-based exclusion thresholds could actually be relaxed safely. So a lot of these laboratory-driven inclusion-exclusion criteria come from a mix of concerns about efficacy in a population where those values are so-called awry, as well as safety. So let's take the lymphocyte count, for example. The lymphocyte count is a measure of your white blood cell count. Patients who have a very, very low lymphocyte count, we call immunocompromised. And in some sense, they're just generally sicker. They're generally at more risk for infections. They're generally maybe kind of beaten down by a prior round of chemotherapy and may not be the most robust candidates for a prospective clinical trial. And so there's kind of a attractiveness of picking a threshold for say, let's just make sure we do this in patients who have a good white blood cell count. And you know, it's nice and high, it's nice and normal. And let's start there, right? That's kind of a natural, instinctive, human way to design a clinical trial. But then we forget, as this paper points out, that that may just cause exclusion of so many patients, you know, who actually in the real world had responses quite comparable to patients with so-called normal lymphocyte levels. So what are the limitations to this approach? Was there any, you know, data that was missing that you would have liked to have access to or any questions that you couldn't quite, you know, get the answer of that you really wanted to? So there are some data that are actually not captured in the real world data. So for example, I think many of the trials also have sort of these softer, more subjective exclusion criteria based on like what is the expected life expectancy of a given patient. So those subjective criteria, we think can also potentially be quite exclusive. We didn't have those data well reported, but I think that could be quite important going forward. Yeah, there's a lot that's kind of missing from the data in a way that's sometimes hidden, right? We don't get to see patients who passed away before they could even start the drug. We don't get to see patients who were only on the drug for a tiny amount of time because their disease progressed. We don't get to see patients who had such a terrible adverse effect that they didn't even get to be on the drug for long enough to qualify as having received that line of therapy in the database. The other is kind of a lot of data points, just like subjective ones that James described, are really hard to record. By and large, in the context of a clinical trial, that documentation is more regulated, more systematic, more precise, and more comprehensive. And so undoubtedly, there are some adverse effects that we just didn't have a chance to capture from the electronic health record. Right. What we've discussed today is looking at past trials and demonstrating that they have these overly restrictive criteria. But how can these findings inform clinical trial design going forward? How would you like to see this algorithm that you developed integrated into clinical design workflows in the future? Yeah, our original goal is to really build a product that can help the design of trials to be more inclusive and more efficient. So the paper is sort of a halfway point, but I think our really main focus still going forward is to really build this product that could uh, help the design of these trials. We're actually piloting a version of this at Roche Genentech. Right? So we have basically an interactive interface whereby the trial designers, clinicians can come in and actually change the different eligibility conditions and see how that affects the patient population and will also expose some of the recommendations from our analysis. Right? So that's sort of like a 
0.1 version of this tool that we're hoping to use within Roche. And uh, certainly I would love to use it across all of the other biopharma companies. So you describe this as a product. And I usually think of the output of academic labs as papers. So how do you think about developing a product in your lab? Are you necessarily thinking about spinning that out as a, you know, a standalone company or is product development part of your kind of lab culture? Ultimately, we really want to have an impact in the clinical trial space. And there are three ways we can have an impact. Certainly writing a high profile paper is one way to do it. And it's also a good proof of concepts. The second way is to really have these concrete insights like, for example, we actually have insights now on what are good designs for these different lab value-based exclusion criteria. These insights, I think, are quite generalizable and could potentially help us in forming similar kinds of treatments, designs going forward. Right? And the third part of this is that you know, we really want to actually build a set of tools that are actually easy for people to use. Right? And that's what I really mean by a product. For example, as part of the Nature paper, we actually released all of the codes that we have for doing this, right? So everything that we built is actually released on GitHub, it's all open source. And part of that, just to push that to the next level, the code still requires quite a bit of expertise for people to build and to use, right? So that's where these kind of more interactive user interfaces that we're currently working on is coming in. Are there other elements of clinical trial design that are currently bespoke, you know, inherited wisdom, like we've seen with this eligibility criteria that you would like to do this kind of data-driven evaluation and reassessment on? Yeah, there are several other aspects of clinical trials that we're currently working on that I think could benefit from a data-driven algorithms approach. So for example, the operations of these trials, right? So how long does it take to enroll patients, right? How many protocol amendments do you have to make? What is the withdrawal rate of the patients? Those are all quantifiable metrics to evaluate how efficient, how successful, how inclusive your trial is. How do we actually be able to predict the effectiveness of trials across all of these different operational metrics as well as clinical metrics? Right? And using that as ways to more holistically help us to design the trials. So it's almost like taking it down to its individual pieces and then building it back up in a way that makes it function and gets you to an answer much better, much faster, much cheaper. Yeah, using these data-driven approaches. Right. You can imagine actually taking this to the next level, looking at the you know, individual patient level to see, okay, given all the information we have seen about similar patients from the medical records, right, can we find which patients are potentially best suited for this particular trial? Right? And even make that end-to-end -end and see, can we actually go find those patients right, from the clinics? Can we get them access to the trials? Because oftentimes that accessibility is one of the big limitations. I like that point because instead of hoping that the right patients will be at your clinic and that you can enroll in the trial, it's actually knowing what your best patient base is and then looking for them and bringing them in. And this is just a very different way to think about how do you expand accessibility to a clinical trial. I like the framework in general of rapid iteration for a space where iteration is fundamentally hard. There's something really attractive about approaches that help us make our experiments more efficient, right? And I think sometimes people are kind of reticent to do that kind of experimentation because it feels like, oh my gosh, there are high stakes here. You know, if we change these criteria, what if patients experience harm? And those are all very, very important questions, but the only way we can answer them is by trying different approaches. And I think there's been a paucity of research on the process of experimentation itself. 
And that's also why I, I tend to view this and frame this as more of a platform technology rather than a specific tool that can hopefully enable rapid experimentation across a variety of diseases. And we're also pushing it beyond cancer to other disease types. Excellent. James, Vanita, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks, Lauren. Great. Thank you. And that's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with the help of the A16Z bio team, Andrew Stelzer, and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you've got questions about this episode or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email BioEatsWorld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And last but not least, if you are enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts.